uh, within his heart and his life and his capacity. So uh, thanks for being here. I want to encourage you to be an active listener. I, I see a number of people have brought pens and pads. You have a phone and you can go to notes and you can type in. And I want to encourage you uh, to be an active participant. This is us. This is a classroom. And uh, there will be a, Luke in just a moment will explain the format. There will be a time a little bit later for question and answers. And uh, many of you think that someone else is going to ask your question. I just know the way our mind works. I want to encourage you to be an active participant tonight and next Sunday night and the following Sunday night as we grow and learn together. I'm going to pray, and then Luke's going to give us some further instruction about the evening. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, tonight we thank you for uh, bringing us and leading us and gathering us in this room tonight. Uh, we thank you for Living Waters Church. We thank you for uh, the interest that we have to reflect and talk and learn and discover together in community. Uh, thank you for each one who's in uh, this room tonight and, and, and represents that heart to, to be on a good journey together. Uh, we thank you for your word, and we ask tonight it would come alive. And that, Lord, uh, we would see you tonight through your living word. Thank you for uh, Rick and Katie and their deep love for this community and their love for you and love for scripture. And pray that you'd bless him tonight as he spends time with us. Watch over this evening. And again, may you, may you uh, through the work of your Holy Spirit, uh, lead us along with wisdom and discernment and knowledge uh, that we would better be equipped uh, to love you and to be uh, a good, good worker on, on your behalf, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Good evening. Just a couple of very brief words from me about how the next three weeks are going to work in the format of the evening. If we could go to the next slide there, Ricky, that would be awesome. Uh, very, very simple layout of our evening. We're going to hear, uh, after our welcome, some teaching from Rick. Then we're going to take a break about 8 p.m., and Rick will make the call and when he, when he wants to break. That's, that's up to him, um, and he'll make that decision in the right spot. And that's a chance for us to use the washroom, stretch our legs, get a breath of fresh air, and then we'll call you back in. And the rest of the evening is about uh, Q&A. And so, as Dave said, uh, you heard another voice of encouragement to please ask questions, ways you can ask those questions. One, uh, you can email me. Uh, I'll be in the back there with Ricky. And please send your questions via email if you're able to. Uh, you can access Wi-Fi in our building if you just go through your settings and figure that out. Uh, if you'd like to text, that's a number you can text to as well. Preferred email so that it can all come together. Uh, we also, in the break, if you need it, we do have pens and sticky notes over here. So feel free to write your question down and uh, hand that into me during the break. And we will do our best to pose as many questions uh, as, as we can. And if that doesn't work, there's someone in the lot selling carrier pigeons. And you can uh, pay $30 to that person out there named Ruben. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. We're going to aim at, to close at, at 9, but we'll see how it goes. And, and just so you know, if you need to go, uh, no one's going to boo you. So please feel free to leave if, if you do need to leave at any point. And a reminder also that we are recording the session, so they're going to be available on podcast. If something goes past you, you're going to be able to, to hear it uh, again. But thanks for being here. Uh, Rick's going to come in just a moment. Just a couple of words uh, about Rick. We don't do it an, an awful lot, but if you signed up through the website, you did see um, uh, 
what Rick and Katie's life has looked like a little bit, and uh, we're not going to stand here and necessarily rattle off what Rick has studied and his influence in scholarship around the world, but it is substantial, and so feel free to take a look at our website and hear that. If you want to hear more from Rick outside of this, you can find plenty on YouTube. You can also find plenty stretching back about seven years on our, on our podcast as well, but you just do need to know that you're in a very special room. There's not a lot of people that get uh, this quality of scholarship and experience and teaching uh, in, a, in a setting like this. There's many people from around the world that travel great distances and spend a lot of money to be in rooms like this, and, and we get to receive it as a local church. So it's a blessing. It's a service that Rick and Katie give, along with many other things. So can we just say thank you to Rick and Katie for serving us tonight? Thanks. Well, you know, thank you for that. I have to tell you, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the generosity of other Christians who actually helped finance my education. And I'm serious about that. Um, going to England and Cambridge is not cheap, but there were folks who were giving scholarships of 30, 40, 50,000 pounds. And I'm here partly because of that. So, um, and then there are folks who prayed for us. And, uh, you know, they're all equal sharers in this. So uh, it's, it's actually a, a great honour and a gift to have this. And... Um, as I said this morning, uh, Jesus is the only one who can do stuff for you, right? So I'm going to do my best to reveal him as much as I can, but let's look to him. That's okay. Um, secondly, thanks for coming. Uh, I am so excited about this. This is just fabulous to see the hunger that people have. And um, if I can say when I was growing up as a young Pentecostal in Australia, we never got this kind of stuff. And my first years at uni were just horrible. In fact, I uh, ended up throwing in my faith. I just didn't know what to do. And so I think part of my call has been to try and provide stuff for folks who are going through that. You know, just to say to young people, in fact, I was down in Dallas recently to, I think, 500 plus undergrads and graduate students, just say to them, listen, uh, you can have incredible confidence in this. You have not come to cunningly devise fables. And it was just wonderful to hear back. And again, I haven't invented any of this. So, you know, it's. Um, when you go to a museum, you get to see Chagall. Anyone like Chagall? I love Chagall, right? Good. He's brilliant. But the art critic didn't do the painting. All the art critic does is help you see it. So you don't thank the art critic, you thank Chagall. And that's what I want to say here, right? This is the Holy Spirit's work. But um, just to hear back from the team later on that they had a number of students say, I'm no longer ashamed to be a Christian. And I can't tell you how much that moves me. Uh, and people find themselves loving Jesus even more. So that's just... That's what I love. That's what I'm about, if people respond like that. So, um, second thing, and there's two more. Um, you don't have to think about this a bit, okay? Uh, yep, brain's in gear. Uh, but you don't have to get everything. Right? Who gets everything about marriage? <laughs> okay, so we are surely not going to get everything about Jesus in three nights. So you can get over that one. Uh, you don't have to master this stuff. Being human, it just never ends. It goes off in all kinds of directions. So you get what you can and you start with that. Is that all right? And you don't compare yourself to somebody else. You start where you are. As a friend of mine used to say, there are cookies on every shelf. It's a beautiful phrase. So take what's there. Uh, it's going to be recorded. So you know, don't panic if you miss something. If you want to get it, you can always go back and have a look later. Uh, in many ways, just kind of sit back and enjoy in an engaging kind of way. And if it go, goes a bit fast in one place, don't worry about it. There's always time to go back. Is that all right? So kind of a deep breath and exhale. <sighs> okay, we're all good. Uh, and probably the final thing to say is um, 
I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. And what I mean by that is uh, I've done my homework as best I can, but I'm not infallible. Right? So I'm trying to serve you well, but that doesn't mean I've got everything right. And the problem, as they say, with blind spots is we all know we have them. We just don't know what they are. That's why they're called blind spots. Okay? So you may well see some things that I've missed and don't ever make the mistake of thinking, oh, I don't have his, have his education. Oh, I'm not clever enough. Folks, I can't tell you how much nonsense that is. All kinds of people can see amazing things and because they're too afraid to say it, we don't benefit from it. Okay. So don't, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. It might be overwhelming, but if you see some things, don't discredit those, right? They, they might be really important insights. Is that right? Got that? Good. So in that spirit, let's pray, shall we? Do that. So Father, we do thank you for your great love for us, for your mercies that are new every morning. And Lord, this world, even though it's been broken through our rebellion, is still an extraordinary place. We appreciated it this afternoon. The snow on the mountains, the green... The sun, just gorgeous. We thank you for that. And we hear your voice saying to us, do you like this? And we go, yep. And he says, well, that's great. I made it for you. We really appreciate that. We thank you too. You haven't left us in our rebellion, but you've come to us ultimately in Jesus. We've got to see you up close and personal. We're amazed at who you are. We're going to be talking about more of that in these next sessions, Lord. But we thank you that you've come and shown us who you are. And you've done everything to reconcile us to you. You're the one who's come all the distance to do that. We thank you for how much you've done to bring us to yourself. And Lord, you've not left us alone. You've left your Holy Spirit through whom you make your dwelling in us. And we have the sure and certain hope of the life of the world to come. So in the light of all of that, we commend ourselves into your good keeping. Give these good people discernment. Help them to pick out the good wheat from what I've got to say and to discern the rubbish and to get rid of that. Through your Holy Spirit, give them filtering ears. But Lord, we pray for the good stuff that it will take root deep in our hearts and give rise to a rich harvest of righteousness. For your glory, we pray that the lamb that was slain might receive his due reward in the strong name of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Ah, okay, so here we go. Ta -da. Oh, I have a slide controller here, don't I? Let's see if it works. Look at that. Uh, so this is what I expect at the end of the evening. Uh, you can leave your shirts on, actually. <laughs> well, I have to say the title, God's Biographers. Luke, was that your, is Luke here? Was that your suggestion? Where is he? Up the back. Was that your suggestion, God's Biographers? It's brilliant. I love that. No, just wonderful. Uh, it's a bit of a teaser. And I think it's one of the many compelling reasons why I think we have to trust these accounts. But in the spirit of Vera or Volanda, any detective story viewers here, right? Uh, we're going to let that emerge as we continue our detective work. I'm not going to unpack that just yet. You'll see where the God's biographers come from as we go through. So why this topic for the next three Sunday nights? Well, there's a range of reasons. I think, first of all, uh, for ourselves... I might have mentioned this this morning. I sometimes wonder if many of us unconsciously think of the Gospels as Christian versions of Lord of the Rings. Now just, just ponder that for a minute. I know it might sound absurd. But where Jesus is kind of an uber Gandalf. Right? 
Now, why do I say that? Well, if I think back about my own life, I noticed this tendency some time ago where I would try to show how Jesus was reasonable, where what he had to say made good sense. Now, think about that for a minute. What does that imply? What does that say about my idea of truth? That Rick is the measure of all of this? <laughs> that Rick's idea is what is reasonable? This is the, really? Uh, apparently, as I thought about it, it wasn't enough for me that Jesus said it. Whoa. Right? And I don't mean to be unkind, but I've been around theological education enough to know that often there's more of an interest in it being reasonable than that Jesus said it. Now, why is that? Where do you ever see that in Scripture? Where does Paul ever say what Jesus teaches reasonable? Teaches his, where, does Jesus ever do that? No. Hmm. People don't follow Jesus because he's reasonable or sensible. Least of all because he conforms to their cultural expectations of what a spiritual person should look like. Not at all. Read the Gospels. They follow him because they're absolutely gobsmacked by his authority. First thing that stands out, we have never heard teaching like this before. And even demons listen to him. Now, when was the last time when I was preaching that a demon came out of somebody, if you even believe in those things? So can you see there's, there's quite a gap between how they responded to him and apparently what Jesus was on about and what we often do with it. And I think it says a lot about what we think is the real measure of truth. Hmm. So it's what they saw and heard that impressed them about Jesus. And uh, that's why this topic's important. What if he really did do these things? What does that say? And my conclusion is, uh, if what these things, what, what these documents say are true, is true, forget my verbs right, then what else can you do but worship him wholeheartedly? If the Jesus they're describing to us is anything like what actually happened, there's no other game in town, folks. There's just no other game in town. And we talked about that with Luke this morning, right? He understands you're either a follower of Jesus or you're caught in some kind of idolatry, and that's it. And that's staggering on the one hand, but if this is true, if what these Gospels have to say is true, that's actually the case. Secondly, I think the question, uh, it also matters because the Gospels are meant to be the core of our convictions. Now notice, I didn't use the word faith. Faith is a really slippery word. You've got to be careful what you do with that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The core of our convictions. And I think from our perspective, from my perspective as a Christian, they've got to be pretty important because the Holy Spirit inspired not one or two but four of them. You need to know that no one in antiquity has four biographies. No one. And certainly not this length. That fact in itself is staggering. How do you explain that? Forget being Christian. Forget believing in God. Just be a straight historian and ask yourself, how do you explain the emergence of four biographies about this guy within three, four, five decades of his life? How do you do that? Just sit and think about it. It really does matter if their claims are true or not. 
Right? And I think we need to think seriously about it. Thirdly, uh, there's our broader, broader Western culture. And certainly in the West, it seems that Christianity is under attack from all sides. Now, it's not yet open persecution. Right? Uh, Christians in Canada are not persecuted. Go to Iran and see what that looks like. Okay? <laughs> um, you know, you want to know what persecution's like? There's lots of people you can ask, but it ain't happening to us. I'm sorry. Uh, hope that's okay. Now, nevertheless, I think it's true that whereas in the 50s and 60s, Christianity was seen in generally positive terms, that's changed. And I know from people who are training in teacher training, for example, uh, that's long since evaporated. The gospel and Christians are being seen now as ignorant, oppressive and dangerous. And that's a bit scary because you don't have to think about where that's going to go before other things start to go with it. However, do be aware, let's not let that get us down too much, that there are some two billion people on the planet who own the name of Jesus. Two billion. No other movement in history has come close to that. Okay. So, you know, don't let's let what, what's happening in the West shape our views, right? Uh, most Christians today happen to be black and female, right? So don't make the judgment based on our small limited set with increasingly massive numbers of Asians. I've taught in China quite a lot. You wouldn't believe what's been going on there for the last 20, 30 years in all kinds of places. I've spoken to professors at Fudan University in Shanghai and they're Christians because their mother, who was a member of the Communist Party along with their father, high-ranking, she got very ill and her Christian cleaner told her about Jesus and prayed for her and she was healed. And you hear those stories over and over again. right? So and I'm just trying to encourage you here. Yeah, in the West, you've got some issues to deal with, but don't confuse the rest of the world with the West. Okay? There are things going on that are encouraging. Well, there are all kinds of reasons, I think, for this change of attitude in the West and lots of significant consequences, but I'm really only after one of these consequences. And I want to say this carefully, but I'm not here to defend Christianity tonight. That's not what I'm here to do. And I'm not here to defend the church either. Now, please don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean I don't care about either. I really do very much, which is why I'm doing this. But when it comes to the last resort, neither Christianity nor the church can fill you with the Holy Spirit. Neither can raise you from the dead. There's only one person who can do that, and that's Jesus. And we talked about that this morning as well. Paul gets this. Everything's in Christ. He's Paul's identity now. So that's what I'm after tonight. The guy that we're following and we worship. He's the one about whom I'm interested tonight. Okay, so got some of those in the background. Now, as we come to the Gospels, uh, just to put my cards on the table, I'm going to be starting with the centrality of historical thinking. Now, just to let you know, um, when I was in Dallas, they're all uni students, so I actually started with an hour's lecture on this. I'm not going to do that to you. (laughs) We may talk about that at the end. Um, But it's really important. All right, And just to say quickly, uh, the problem with science and philosophy is they're all about things called universals. They're about general laws. So... You're a scientist, you can actually, by looking and discerning and studying, you can tell what kind of food a mockingbird will eat. You'll know its wingspan, right? You'll know its mating habits. You'll know the kinds of nests it builds. You can do all that kind of stuff, but you can never tell, 
never explain why this particular mockingbird landed in your front yard at 9.51am on the 4th of April 2021. Science can never tell you that. Because it cannot deal with individuals. And that's because it's not designed to. And the great danger is if we keep believing in that kind of science, you wonder why we lose our humanity. It's only concerned with the general rules. It cannot see you because it doesn't deal with individuals. Certainly not agents. And that's what history does. That's a much bigger debate, but people recognised that in the early 1900s. What history does is allow you to talk about people and their intention and their activity, individuals. Now, this is stunning because this is at the end of a 2,000-year debate and longer starting with the Greek philosophers and historians, right? where do you finally end up the importance of history? And God knew that from the beginning. Look at scripture. It's history. It's not theology. It's not philosophy. It's not science. It's all about people. You notice how often it focuses on individuals? Moses, Abraham. Why is it doing that? Because that's the only way you can talk about people and hang on to their unique humanity. Got that? So... Uh, I get very excited about that because Scripture's there. It got that long before we'd finally sorted that out in our debates. It's just great, I think. Okay, well, I'm excited. Um, let that go through. And it's key to what we're going to be doing in the next few sessions. History's about why do individuals do what they do? Why did Caesar decide to cross the Rubicon? You've got to pay attention to that. That's going to be one of the big questions underneath all of this. We've got four biographies. Why did these guys decide to write them? Where did this stuff come from? Okay, so some considerations. Oh, I've got my own controller. I'm just used to waving my hand. So just a couple of things to think about when you're doing history, just to get us going, to let you know. The historian's job is not to judge, nor to mock others' ignorance, or to condemn their prejudices. Why? And historians' first job is to understand. Now, can I maybe suggest that's a great way to approach your Bible? <laughs> understand first. When you're in a counselling session, when you're talking to somebody <laughs> about something, understand first. It's one of the things they hammered into us in England was you're in no position to criticise until you can demonstrate that you can explain that other view in a way that's acceptable to that person. Only then do you have the right to criticise. Right? Now that takes work, because it's much nicer to be able to criticise, right? That little moment of superiority, right? There's no understanding in that. There's no attempt of getting beyond ourselves to try and say, okay, what do you mean by that? Where are you coming from? So, to say, I don't believe in fate, the gods use, or demons, that's not doing history. That's just imposing my prejudices upon the ancients. That's not what this is about. And I'm not really sure where that temptation comes from. If I think of my youth, uh, part of the reason I would find fault in other people is to escape being guilty myself, right? Remember that? Someone says, oh, Richard, oh, yes, but you did that, right? Immediately shifting the blame to someone else. And what underlies that? Mm, that's interesting. Maybe it's the Jonah syndrome. Who knows? But my parents always used to say to me, listen, it doesn't matter how the others have acted. Your response is your response. You need to own up to that one. Right? You deal with yourself. Don't worry about their response. 
The problem with the judgment is it makes history about me. It's a kind of ideological colonization or colonialism of the past. It's not about me, it's about them. Only when we've understood why they did what they did in terms of their own motivations and beliefs can we be in a position to assess. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks. We're going to try and understand what's going on in terms of their worldview. Only after we've got a sense of what's happening there can we be in any position to make some kind of judgment. Now, I think that's fair enough. Would you like people to judge you without knowing why you do what you do? No, none of us want that, right? But let's face it, it takes a lot of work to get out of your own shoes and try and stand in someone else's, right? It's actually called self-denial. I think Jesus taught about that. (laughs) Secondly, unlike science, we can't repeat these events. We don't have direct access to them. And even then, we don't know what people are thinking unless they tell us. So uh, this is going to give away the kind of TV I like watching, but um, anyone seen, it was Inspector Lewis, is that the one? Okay, yeah, love that. Um, and what's the name of the, the woman who does the forensic work? What's it, Laura, is that it? Right, right. Um, she's got a bit of a shine for Lewis, hasn't she, right? And there's one great scene where she says to Lewis, remember what she says? She says, Lewis, people won't know what you're thinking unless you tell them. Exactly. When we're doing history, we don't know what's motivating people unless they tell us. Well, that's what we get in these documents. You get Jesus talking, and from that, we have to try and work out what that says about his motivation. That's going to be a key part of what we're doing here. So what do we have then? Because we can't repeat these events, because it's not science. Remember, this is unique people in history. You can't repeat it. Well, what we have are sources, in this case, the Gospels. And then uh, some of us have to spend our lives doing lots of work in how ancient people understood their world. And let's be clear, we know a heck of a lot more about what people thought in antiquity than we did 200 years ago. Uh, We know so much more than what they knew. Even so, we still lost between 80 to 90% of the past. That's kind of sobering. <laughs> you, just, you don't have access to it, it's gone. And we also know very, very little about what ordinary people thought. Why? Because they don't write stuff. In the ancient world, it's the elites who produce the literature, not the common people. When was the last time you wrote a book? And not to be too cheeky, I was reading a, a chap once who said, most people have a book in them, and for most people, it should stay there. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, hang on, excuse me, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, well, it's, I'm glad that you laughed. I'm, I'm laughing at myself too. And secondly, there's our common humanity. We have a good sense of how people behave, especially if you've been around for a bit. And it's why we can translate languages, because there's a common humanity that underlies all of that. It might be expressed differently in different cultures, but high hopes, longing for love, trying to make sense of life, pain, suffering, violence, it's all there, common to humanity. We share this with people in the first century. So even if their culture's different, we do have this common sense of what it means to be a human being. We try to work out what's going on. Now, 
The really good thing, I think, about this approach, if I can say so, is you don't have to believe in God to talk about this. In fact, God's irrelevant to this conversation right now. We're not talking about that. Now, don't get too panicked, some of you. Um, I do believe in God. But the great thing about this is you don't need to to have this conversation, and I think that's brilliant. Because the claims of Jesus can be heard whether you believe in God or not. You don't have to believe in the spiritual world. In fact, you don't even have to believe that Jesus existed. Because we're not talking about whether he existed. We're talking about things that do for documents that actually do exist. And if I had enough influence and people liked you enough, I could take you into the bowels of libraries and actually show you manuscripts. Right? Oop, I pressed the wrong button. See that? That's the stuff we're dealing with. It's real. Uh, there's no chance you get to touch it. They wouldn't let you do that. But if you're lucky, they'll let you look at it. Okay? That's what we're talking about. So I'm serious when I say you don't have to believe in Jesus. That's it. He's irrelevant right now. We've got four documents that anyone can see and touch and handle. And that's all we require to do this. Are you prepared to work with what your senses give you? And are you willing to think about how humans behave based on our sources? That's all we ask of anyone. Now, I hope that doesn't make you feel uneasy, but for me it's a wonderful thing because you can talk about this on the plane, train, or in the automobile with anybody. It's accessible to everyone. You'll hear some people say the Bible is the church's book. It's become a bit of a refrain lately. I don't think that's entirely true. It's there for everyone to see, and you can talk about it, and that's what we're going to be doing in the next little while. Is that okay? Kind of got that? So if you're the kind of person who wants to have coffee with your neighbour, right, or if you live in England, what they do a lot is they'll go down the pub because the pub's not a place to get drunk. It's a place to meet with your mates in front of the fire. Probably I should leave that one there, not to tread in too many toes. But the thing is, you can talk about Jesus in those settings. And just to encourage you, we've had a bit of theory. A number of years ago, I had a young guy turn up to my office at Regent from UBC. And he came across, he said, oh, you know, I've, I've heard about you and I... Um, kind of interested in the Christian thing and you know um, you're interested in talking to me and I said well yeah maybe well you know I've been around uni enough to know that there are you know we were all young once and full of something and mustard and it was all about just having arguments right I'm not interested in that and I said that to this guy I'm not interested in having some kind of little debate where we joust and then well no interest whatsoever but if you're serious about this for sure he said I'm serious oh really yeah okay how serious? Oh, I'm happy to read. Oh, really? How much reading? No, you know. no, 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 no. You interested in reading 600-page books? He's a uni student, right? Oh, well, maybe. Well, you have to decide. Okay. <laughs> so for a couple of months, I give him books to read. We come back and talk about it. And um, the most recent book I gave him that conversation was Tom Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God. Now, this book, if you drop it on your foot, you will never walk again. <laughs> It's massive, and he read it. So he came back, and I said, okay, so what do you reckon? And he was a bit silent, and he said, well, I, I, I don't really know. <laughs> oh, really? He said, well, based on this, the resurrection must have happened. Good, good, good. Yes, I said. What are you going to do about it? 
Oh, uh, I suppose I should follow Jesus. Yes, you should. Let's get started. Let's pray and off we go, right? And since then, he's become a youth leader and all kinds of stuff. You see, that the stuff speaks for itself. That's what I'm trying to tell you. This is, Jesus is not some Gandalf figure. This is stuff you can see and touch and handle, as John says in his letter. We're telling you about what we saw and touched and handled. We have not come to cunningly devise fables. You know that? If you were there, you would have seen this. Okay? So, the Gospels, just to clear some air. We've got three sessions, so it's okay. I don't mind taking our time getting into this. Or maybe, am I saying too much already? You're drowning, some of you? It's okay. Um, Katie's saying get moving. Good. So the first thing, I want to clear the air uh, with regard to some, I think, pretty serious misunderstandings. For instance, you'll often hear that there are so many corrections, mistakes, alterations, etc., over a long period of time, the Gospels are hopelessly inaccurate. Uh, not quite. In fact, not at all. We have far more evidence and much, much earlier for the Gospels than any other ancient document. Far more. We have scores of copies from the first five centuries, some even from the first two. And again, a lot of this has only emerged over the last couple of hundred years. It might surprise you, but the evidence has been building. Serious scholarship matters. We have a fragment of John from about 110 AD. It's likely not the original, but it's already a copy of a document probably written around 90. Now, our earliest copy of Plato, remember Plato from school? We've got a few papyrus scraps from the rubbish dumps of Egypt with a couple of lines on them. But our first serious copy of Plato is half of one document, 1,300 years after Plato wrote. Just think about that for a minute. There's no comparison. So I would say to someone, if you're going to be serious, you're going to say, oh, I'm going to reject the Gospels, you have to dispense with pretty much everything we have from antiquity because nothing comes close to the actual historical records that we have. Nothing comes close in terms of the, um, the manuscripts, whatever. Okay? Now, no sane scholar is going to do that, right? Christian or otherwise. They're not going to do that. You've got to work with what you've got. Secondly, the abundant evidence that we have suggests the very opposite of looseness in copying. People who work in this stuff will tell you that by and large there's a great deal of care in their copying. They're not making fast and loose with this stuff. Now it's true that no two documents are exactly the same. That's just the truth and it shouldn't surprise you. These are handwritten documents. Mistakes like that happen. That's what it means to be human. In fact, if there were no mistakes, then there really would be evidence for a conspiracy. And people who work in detective cases will tell you, right? Once you start getting stories that are exactly the same, you ought to smell a very large rat. Because that's just not the way it works. But all of those myriad variations, they're almost entirely insignificant. Just different forms of verbs or different pronoun or something. Right? No real change in the way we understand who God is. So for people who work in this field, there's universal agreement. There's something like 97 to 98% of what you read in your Greek New Testament 
is what was in the original. Now, you can't guarantee that for any other document in antiquity. Okay? Now, that doesn't prove it's true. All we're doing now is talking about reliability of copies. So when people say, oh, you can't trust and they've been mucked about with too much, no, sorry, that's not true. And be honest now, apply the same standards elsewhere. Now, I have to admit, there are some very rare instances that have more weight, and I don't mean to shock you, but the woman caught in adultery, that's a tricky passage. Okay? And uh, not to upset any apple carts, but you might as well hear it here. Uh, it doesn't occur in lots of copies of John. But that's one of the few instances, and I won't be including that in our discussion. I'm just going to leave that to one side. We've got a lot to work with apart from that. So it says to me that these two elements, generally very careful copying, and you can see that by looking at the evidence, with these occasional slips, that demonstrates the people just being people. There's no great conspiracy here. I think these are evidence for the historicity of these documents and the fact that there was no conspiracy. All right? For those of us among us for whom conspiracy theories are meat and drink. The early Christians knew about fraud and on occasion they denounced it. But there's no hint anywhere in the ancient records that anyone ever thought the Gospels from the beginning were fraudulent. Nowhere. Nothing like that whatsoever. No hint of it. Now, far more tellingly, and this kind of gets us a bit more into what we're doing, and it's central to these talks, the question is this, just thinking as an historian, were there any Christian commitment whatsoever? Right? Just... At least we share a common idea of doing history. Why would anyone, Jew or Greek, in antiquity fabricate this kind of material? And what gives that its power is knowing something about the ancient world, which, if you forgive me, most of us don't. And that's not, I'm not condemning on or blaming anyone. Right? But when you know something about the ancient world, you realize just how preposterous is the claim that people would have invented this stuff. And it's not just a matter of why would they, it's more a matter of how could they? How is it even possible that someone could invent this stuff? So much of the Gospels comes entirely out of left field. No one's expecting this stuff. Why would you fabricate what no one in their wildest dreams could ever imagine? Why would you do that? That's a really serious point you have to think about if you're thinking historically. You're trying to explain people's motivations, why they do what they do in a given context. To try and explain where these documents come given antiquity, you're in real, real trouble unless something like this actually happened. Okay? Now that's kind of the basic overview. We're going to go through all the different instances that we go through. Now, key to this, and this is the third point, uh, not piecemeal, in my field traditionally scholars have tended to work through various bits of the gospel one at a time little bit here, a little bit there, as if examining individual coloured beans. Sounds a bit like the pearls this morning, but not quite. And they sort them into boxes. Oh, Jesus likely said that, or not likely said that. That's just really bad historical method. And the reason is, or there are two of them actually, we do not in fact have hundreds of individual coloured beads lying scattered on the floor. That's not what we have. We have these. Right? 
that's not a scattered collection of boxes with be- you know, little beads in it. This is a serious, holistic document in one piece. That's what we actually have. So to start splitting them up is already to muck about with the evidence, it seems to me. What we do have are these wonderful, integrated, cohesive documents. Four carefully constructed whole narratives. And that's our concern. We want to know how those came about, what we actually have in front of us. And there's good reason for doing this. The Jesus of the Gospels is presented as a single, immensely coherent agent, not a grab bag of psychologically disparate bits. Now, you see, what sometimes messed us up here is I grew up with a promise box. You know about promise boxes? You know, you kind of stick in your little thing and pull out your scriptural plum and say, what a good boy am I or something. And what does that get us to think? Well, it teaches us you just treat this stuff as isolated bits. Right? And then we quote verses at one another. Right? Uh, when I was growing up in Australia, um, we would do what we would call McDonald's farmyard exegesis, right? Here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse first, right? And, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I get the point of what people are trying to do, but if we're not careful, it misleads us because we don't see the whole. And then we lose a sense of Jesus as an individual who covered a whole range of different things. We end up just splitting him up into all these little bits. Well, he's not like that. So our question is, we have to understand how this whole picture that we have, the whole thing, how does that make sense in his first century Jewish world? And Jesus was Jewish, by the way. And I have to say the church forgot that for quite a long time. And probably only recently in the last 50 or 60 years have people really taken that seriously. What does it mean for Jesus to be a Jew? It probably actually begins in the 60s. A guy called Anthony Harvey wrote a book. No, no, it wasn't. It was Ben Meyer, The Aims of Jesus. Notice that the aims of Jesus. That's about agency and intention. That's what history deals with. What was Jesus trying to do in the context of his first century Jewish world? That's why this stuff is so important, it seems to me. Only when we've got a picture of that are we in a position to say which elements might seem foreign to us. Okay, so that's kind of the initial framework and I think I have about another 10 or 15 minutes. So um, we're going to make a bit of a transition into this kind of new topic. But uh, hang on to any questions you have there. You can ask those in the break. But that just kind of sets the groundwork for where we're coming from. Now we're ready to start talking about these things that we actually have. Okay, and our first question is, um, what are they? Well... They're things you have in your Bible. Yeah, 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 but uh, we can probably say a bit more than that. What are they? Well, the first thing to notice is they're in Greek. Uh, And uh, you might not think that's terribly interesting, but in one sense it is because Jesus' daily discourse was likely to be in Aramaic. Wow. That's a significant shift, right? Why not say you have to learn Aramaic to get Jesus? They don't do that. They start writing in Greek. Oh, well, of course, in Jesus' world, everyone had to know a little Greek. Terrible joke. And I don't mean the guy who runs the fish and chip shop. Sorry about that. That's just dreadful. But it's the best we can do, this pathetic. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How humiliating. <laughs> and he probably even knew some Hebrew. Right? Um, not every Jewish person would be speaking Hebrew. Right? Aramaic is the national tongue, and that's what they do. And even your Hebrew Bible, interestingly is actually printed in Aramaic. 
with Hebrew spelling, just in case you wanted to know. Uh, there's background behind all of that, but um, anyway. Not so the Gospels are entirely in Greek. And it's not just that they're in Greek. They're in the everyday Greek spoken by common people. The people for whom Greek is their second language. Have you ever met people who are ESL speakers? What do they do with their prepositions? Forgive me. But the clearest sign that someone's not a natural English speaker is what they do with their prepositions because they're hard to get. Right? You can always tell the ESL speakers, like, and, and it's no problem. We're not, you know, if I was speaking in some other language, you'd be, oh yeah, right? Ah, you're speaking Thai as a second language, I can tell. Yep. Okay. But the thing that's really worth noticing is that um, they're not writing for literary elites. We know what that Greek looks like. Read Josephus, you'll see some of that stuff. He's a Jewish historian writing for the Greco-Roman world, right? Highbrow stuff. Not the Gospels. Luke at the beginning, maybe. Luke really kind of puts on the, the dog when he starts and it's got this wonderful literary Greek. He's letting you know he can do this stuff. But he backs away from that very quickly. Why? Because you should know from this morning, this is for all people. It doesn't mean they don't have profound ideas. But as my professor, Mona Hooker, used to say, the job of scholars is not to use four-syllable words and be walking dictionaries. Your job is to take complex ideas and make them accessible. That's your job. Really good lesson. I still have the little slap mark on the side of the cheek with that one. It was great. Now, why is this important? So, okay, Rick, so what? Well, think about it. We're talking about history, and history is not about events. This is really important. You might have learnt that at school. History is not about events. It's about actions. There's a huge difference. Event is just simply something that happens. Action is about somebody who does it. And that's what you're after in history. Why did Caesar choose to cross the Rubicon? That's what makes history interesting. So our question here is, okay, yep, here it is in Greek. The question is, why did they write in Greek and like this? Well, what it tells me and many others is that the gospel writers were trying to communicate with the broadest possible audience. Right? Now, think about the implication of that. To do that, they have to use accessible language. Again, doesn't mean their ideas aren't profound. Doesn't mean there's not deep stuff there, but they know how to do it in accessible language. But it's not just that. If you're going to reach a broad group of people, you have to write in an accessible genre. Uh, forgive me, the illustration's an old one, but anyone know Little House on the Prairie? Okay, good. Anyone seen Being John Malkovich? No, there's a reason for that, because Little House on the Prairie, anyone can get, and Being John Malkovich, who knows? Right. Now, the point here is, the fact that they're writing in this kind of Greek suggests they're writing to be understood. There's no point in writing if everyday people don't recognise what you're doing. You see that? No point in writing in everyday Greek if ordinary people don't get what you're doing. Well, what are they trying to do? And that's why there's this broad scholarly consensus that the closest parallels we have in the first century are to Greco-Roman biographies. The closest parallels we have, right? Now, just notice as I'm doing this, not to keep laboring the point, but I will. You don't have to believe in God to have this conversation. Don't even have to believe in Jesus. We're just talking about stuff that anyone can see and touch, but, well, no, you can't really, but you can look at it. I should stop. Now, they're not exactly the same, and we're going to talk about some of the differences later. 
But that's the ballpark. So three points come out of this, it seems to me. First of all, learning something about Greco-Roman biography is going to help us understand the Gospels. Right? Stands to reason. Okay? We'll come back to this in just a moment. Some things in the Gospels will make, a lot, will make a lot more sense if you get what's going on in the ordinary expectations of everyday people. It also puts strict limitations around some of our options. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, I don't trust the Gospels, they're just fairy tales? Ever heard that? Hmm? Actually, no. We know what fairy tales look like, and this is clearly not the Brothers Grimm. There are no dwarves, fairies, ogres, or speaking animals. And furthermore, the Grimm brothers are far too late and from the wrong culture. Okay? So you can just shunt that one to the side. And even if you want to talk about folktales from the Bronze Age, like Homer, they're not the same. Those folktales, if you do your homework, come from an unreal, unhistorical world. They lack specific and definite localities or persons. They're simply archetypal characters. That's not the Gospels. Oh, well, they're just myths. Eh, no, nice try, no cigar. We know what myths look like. Some of you probably read a range of either Greek or even First Nations myths. The Gospels are clearly not those. Myths have to do with origin stories or explaining behaviours, dancing in the mists of the ancient past. No one in antiquity writes myths about the immediate past, and certainly not when those events are in living memory whether many eyewitnesses are still alive. Okay. Fairy tale? No, nice try. No, no. Myth? No, not at all. They're not that. Sorry. What about all the merely legends? Well, once again, we know what legends look like. These are not legends. So one Mark and scholar, uh, actually the chap who taught me Mark many years ago, related an incident where a copy of Mark was given to a famous German classicist by the name of Gunther Zuntz. Sounds very Deutsch, right? And... Uh, Amazingly, Gunther had no previous Christian experience, but he was the doyen of classical literature, so he knew that world. So this person gave him a copy of Mark and said, what do you think about this? And Gunther's response was, oh, this writer thinks he has something very important to say with a superior purpose, and by that he means superior to the other stuff he's read. It has a feeling of otherness. This is a history, a biography, unlike any other. And he summarised it as a higher being on his way through the anxious world of human beings and demons. I think that's an amazing account of the Gospels, right? And this is from a guy with no Christian commitment or even knowledge. He's just saying, okay, I know about classical literature from the Roman period. Oh, and what's this? It's a history and a biography. Notice that? Now, what does that tell you? It tells me that the gospel authors intended and their readers likely understood that they were making claims about an historical individual. That's what's on the table here, right? Making claims about an historical individual who did and said these very things, but whose words and deeds they recognised, as did Gunther, were unlike anything else they'd ever come across. All right. So it might be worth just pondering about that when you next read your gospel. Right? Don't read it as some kind of bricks in space. Think about it in the first century, realizing 
that people would have seen this as a biography and at the same time, whoa, I ain't never seen anything like this before. That's the reader's response. But if you read the Gospels, that's exactly the response of people who see Jesus. They're amazed. They're thunderstruck. They've never come across anything like this ever before. You can't help but get from reading the Gospels that this Jesus that they're describing, whether he existed or not for sake of argument, in the Gospels, he displays this just extraordinary sense of untroubled authority and personal presence, and there's nothing like it anywhere else. Hmm. Now, the point, I'm not saying this means you have to believe them. That's not what we're doing here. We're simply talking about what is it that we're looking at. We want to get that right. You might think that they're mistaken. They were deceived or even themselves charlatans. Right? These are all possible options. But however we respond, it has to be on the grounds that respect the genre. These are not presenting themselves as ancient myths, legends, or modern fairy tales. They're making a claim about history and biography. We have to look at them in those terms. Well, we're almost at our 8 o'clock break. Um, the last comment I think I need to make in this section. On its own, the English word gospel can be misleading. I think sometimes for us, it sounds kind of different from anything else and kind of carries connotations of you know, being religious, okay? uh, which you understand was not a word anyone used in the sense we do in the ancient world. No one in the ancient world thought they were practicing religion. It's really important to get that. Right? The early Christians did not think Christianity was a religion. No one thought that. It had nothing to do with that. Religion is a modern conceit that we think people do if they choose to or not on a Sunday or whenever. That's not how it was in antiquity. You did what you did because you were Greek, Roman or Jewish. Everyone did it. It had nothing to do with religion. It wasn't optional. It was just part of your life. It's how you lived. But when we use gospel, it can sound as though we're talking about something religious, which for many people means that's just a private belief versus what happens in public. Or to pick up on that earlier statement, oh, that's just about personal faith versus fact. Usually implying some kind of deep psychological disorder if you believe this stuff. Well, that is just so seriously mistaken, I hardly know where to begin. That's not what the word gospel meant. It was a political term, and it was applied to something that actually happened. We talked about Augustus Caesar this morning. There were some Asian Romophiles who regarded the announcement of Augustus Caesar's birth as gospel. That's serious, in the dirt, living, breathing, real stuff that happens. So whatever we do, folks, it seems to me we have to avoid anything that might lead us to read these again as some kind of Christian version of Lord of the Rings. Fables to be spiritualized. They're not doing that. So I don't mind us hanging on to the word gospel as long as we actually know what this means and that their primary shape is biographical history with political implications. The word Christianoi, it's not our word, by the way. They labeled us with that term. It's a Roman political term and it's borrowed from how they regarded zealous supporters of Nero. <laughs> Uh, Nero's not highly thought of in antiquity. Right? Well, that's okay, get used to it. They didn't think very highly of Christians either. 
It's, what it means is, it's not complimentary, it means Christ partisans. Right? So obsessed with Jesus, you know, just forget about them doing politics reasonably. <laughs> Good, I like that. But it's the best term they had to try and describe what they understood these Christians to be. These guys were just nuts about Jesus, right? totally devoted to him, but it's not some religious thing. This is what you use as someone who actually lived and these people are following him. Okay. Now, I have to say, it looks political, but if you read the scriptures, that idea of politics was never parsed in the way that either Greeks, Romans or Jews thought it should be. Right? And one of the things you'll notice is people just, Jewish people didn't know what to do with Jesus. Like, Hang on, if you're the Messiah, we know what that looks like. Well, that's not the way he works out the politics. All right? Well, my time is gone. It's 8 o'clock. Um, and again, we've got three sessions, so that's just to kind of get some stuff to get us going. And in the next two weeks, we're actually going to dive into the Gospels and talk about the different things that go on in biographies. Is that all right? It's great. It's 8 o'clock. I've been here for a while. Uh, you're probably exhausted. And I think a bit like Paul, I could go on for hours. But if you fell off your chair, I couldn't raise you from the dead, so I should probably stop. Just... <laughs> Good <laughs> stuff. Why don't we stand up and take a break, grab some air, Come back in seven minutes because that's the holiest number we can think of. And we'll get into some Q&A together. Thank you very much. Thanks again for joining us. So we've got about uh, 45 minutes for Q&A. And uh, thank you for sending your questions in tonight. And thanks to everybody who uh, replied to that email earlier last week. So we've got a great amount of questions that we're going to work through together. Some of them might... Um, uh, they might venture into the next topics that are coming. So, Rick, if they do that, you can kind of give us like a, like a, what's like a teaser trailer or uh, however much you want to lead into it. Say we're going to get into that in the next, in the next session because these are, these are really great questions um, coming in through email, which is awesome. And, uh, you know, just an encouragement too that if you want to bring in questions for next week, feel free to email those to me and we can carry them into the next sessions uh, as well. And if we don't get to all of them, um, you can fire me. All right. Uh, here's, a, here's a first one. Um, it, it starts a little bit just with um, arriving at the papyrus and the manuscripts. Um, we're, we are imagining there's some form of oral tradition before um, they, come, they come down to be, to be written. Even though it's a short time, there was some form. So the question is, when were the Gospels written and any information about the oral tradition that was maintained at first? Now, that's a really good question, um, and when we normally teach this as part of New Testament intro, we start with the life of Jesus and then work our way through, and of course there's a period of oral tradition in between all of that. It's a really good question. Before I go into that, um, and again, not to gainsay the question, but remember what we're dealing with is what we actually have that's written. And I think once you look at what's written, you're going to realise that oral tradition has to be pretty faithful because no one's going to invent the stuff that's in the Gospels. So we don't really know what happened in the oral period. We don't have access to that. Uh, we have some things that we can look at. We know Jesus was a teacher. That seems to be pretty clear if you know anything about him. And he's a pretty good one. He comes up with all these amazing aphorisms. Right? These one-liners. I mean... Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Who can come up with that on the spur of the moment? Now, I live in a business where we can write 500-page books that nobody understands. Okay? But to come up with a one-liner that captures something and lasts forever, that's true genius. I don't know if you've ever thought of Jesus as a genius. 
Now that's where my professor, Mona Hooker, helped me a bit. She said, your job as a scholar is to take complex things and make them accessible. Jesus was brilliant at doing that. And uh, you might have noticed, I was just, I learned a lot from preparing for that Luke sermon this morning, stuff that I'm, you know, I'm nearly 70, I hadn't seen it before. And I'm staggered that this guy nails this stuff in just a few sentences. <laughs> You've heard me labour on for an hour. He's just going to right? Um, so the fact that he's a teacher probably suggests that he was deliberately intending for people to remember what he did. Those little aphorisms make it clear. These guys have been with him. He chooses them to be with him for his whole life. So the 12 in particular, he chooses to be with him. And then he's going to send them out. So that's intentional too. So that suggests that he wants them to get what he's doing. And he does enough weird stuff that it's going to stick with you, right? Constantly Jesus says these bizarre things like, what? And that's what human beings are designed to notice, right? We're designed to notice the stuff that's really like, what? Where did that come from? Okay? And you can try that as a public speaker. You can kind of waffle on like I do about stuff everyone accepts and then say something outrageous and see what people remember. Okay? Um, well, so much of what Jesus does is outrageous. And he's not just doing it once. It's not as if Jesus has a YouTube channel. Right? He's going from village to village. So you know, we're getting the Gospels, but the disciples have probably heard this stuff scores of times even if in different settings, but they've heard it over and over and over again. And then by the time you actually start reading these Gospels, in fact, before they're written, uh, the very first letter that Paul writes, I would argue, Thessalonians, he begins by saying, right, God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That statement is just staggering because that Lord is the Yahweh of the Shema, I would argue. Hear, O Israel, right? Yahweh, Yahweh, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That comes from that statement and you have to ask, how in the world did Paul a Pharisee end up making a statement like that without any explanation that Jesus was somehow Yahweh? You have any idea? How do you get to that in the first century? So that would say to me, if they have that high a view of Jesus, we know what they did with the law of Moses. So all of those things suggest to me, and add to that they're concerned with eyewitnesses as a bunch of others, I think that oral tradition is pretty secure. But in terms of our argument, you can actually argue the other way. Start with the Gospels. Who's going to invent this stuff? If they're not going to invent it, then the follow-on argument is they must have been pretty consistent with the oral tradition because it's not what they're expecting. Does that Good stuff. Okay. Good stuff. There's a few questions here we can kind of group together Great. that we're, I imagine we're going to get into in session two, which is kind of the differences between the Gospels. But okay. this one stands out that brings in some contrast. We talk about potential legends and fables. Works like the Gospel of Thomas. Ah. Um, and there's others that are similar. Um, how are those different from the four that were canonized that we would, yeah. that we would say these are, these are actual okay. history? And then there's things like Gospel of Thomas. And give us a picture of what a Gospel of Thomas might be and, and why we're kind of like, nah, we don't really listen to that one. Yeah, okay, so again, it's a really good question. Um, but just let me add, I'm not trying to defend the Gospel of Thomas tonight. Okay, so. But the Gospel of Thomas is just a whole lot of isolated sayings. And that's really foreign to Jewish thinking, unless you're dealing with the book of Proverbs or something. But most of Israel's understanding of Yahweh's revelation is in narrative form, where Yahweh speaks and acts in a given situation. So whether it's the Torah from Genesis through to Deuteronomy, whether it's Judges or Samuel, uh, they're really interested in God acting in history. You don't tend to find Jewish people thinking about isolated statements of truth. That's much more a Greek thing. 
Right? You're looking for universals. So I look at the Gospel of Thomas and my first feeling is there's no narrative to this. It's just a collection of sayings. Why do they do just a collection? Well, that implies they don't care about the history. That already makes me think, hang on a minute, that's not really faithful to Jewish thinking. And I'd even argue that Paul is much closer to a Jewish historian as a prophet than to a philosopher. Uh, not to stir anybody up, but um, there's no way Paul is a theologian, not in any first century sense. He just, no way. We know what they look like, he's not that, and they reject him. They don't, you know, the philosophers are the theologians. So that's a bit of a shock because we tend to think of well, theology as Christian. Actually, it's not a Christian word. It was invented by the Greeks. And it's all about rational thought about God independent of culture and history. Well, that's not the gospel. So I'd say Gospel of Thomas, given its you know, setting in Egypt, it's much more what they call Gnostic. And the assumption is behind that you need to get past the surface of things and get to the kind of secret wisdom in behind it. And I just don't see that in Jesus anywhere. So, you know, I just... And that's why it never gets up in the early church. It's, um, there's no way they're going to go with that one. Two really quick ones. Uh, have you ever seen the earliest couples? We, we, we referenced them. Have you seen them in the flesh yourself? No. In the libraries referencing? <laughs> Where are they if we wanted to break oh. in and steal them? Like Ocean's Eleven? <laughs> um, and, and, and who's copying these early Gospels and, and what, what's their purpose, if you could restate that? Well, um, yeah, I have a friend who uh, does work in textual criticism and he mostly just gets to deal with photographs because these things are too precious. My son Stephen is a medievalist and uh, he actually gets to go to Rome and gets into these libraries that you know, people like I can't get into. And, and he's working on documents from 1100, actual there in front of him. <laughs> wow, uh, you can't do that with the Gospels. They're just not going to run that risk. So no, I'm not going to tell you where they're stored in case you do something like that. <laughs> okay. um, well, we don't know who's copying them. It, it's amazing how little we know about the first century Christians. We just, there's so little we know about them. We know almost nothing about Mark. There's a few references, but not much. Okay? Um, we have very little about Paul's thought processes. We have the letters he wrote. But you can read those letters in a couple of hours. His life's much bigger than that. So in one sense, we don't really know about the people who were copying this in the first century. We do have their documents. And it's not likely to find people who are unbelievers, worshippers of Dionysus, copying Mark. Why would they do that, for crying out loud, right? And no one really notices Christians, by the way, in the first century. They only really start to be noticed in the second century. Uh, and that's when you tend to get all this diversity. So um, I think the best guess is they're copying this stuff because they're committed to it. There's no other reason why they do that, I think. Uh, and then you actually look at the evidence, and most of it comes in from the late 2nd, early 3rd and 4th century. And you've got all these manuscripts you can look at, and you can tell you know, how carefully some people are doing nothing. Some of them, um, they're half asleep. There's one copy of Luke where the guy completely messes up Jesus' genealogy, and God becomes the son of somebody. I don't know what he was thinking about at the time, but, but those are really rare. You can see them, so you know, yeah, we have evidence of people who are not thinking when they're doing this, but all the others, you can see they're being really careful. And they're even noting in, in the margins where, oh, I've looked at another copy of this and he's got a different wording. You can see that, right? And by the way, to write is a very difficult exercise in antiquity. It's not like us. We learn to write and read at the same time. They never did that. Paul doesn't write his own letters. You need a skilled person to do that. He dictates them, but he won't write them down. 
except one part, he says, this is how I write. So he just puts it at the end so you can recognise it. But, so that kind of adds to it as well. Uh, Absolutely. And they had, uh, they had time because they didn't have Facebook, so they could learn how to do oh, that stuff. Yeah. But Lord, have mercy upon you, us. Okay, a couple of rapid fires. Did Jesus speak Aramaic, yes or no? Yeah. What else did he speak, possibly? Well, um, as I said, everyone happens to know a bit of Greek, and he's in Galilee. So Galilee, the people in Jerusalem weren't sure about Galilee, right? It's a little bit like, uh, forgive me, but Ottawa looks at Calgary, right? <laughs> Uh, guys in Ottawa, we're all sophisticated, da, 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 and those guys in you know, Calgary, they're all rednecks and yahoos. But you know, those guys in Calgary, boy, they're serious Canadians. You muck about with them and you're in trouble, right? And it's, they just don't care for all the you know, kerfuffle and stuff that goes on in Ottawa. They're not interested in that. Well, it's a bit like that with Galilee in Jerusalem. Most of the revolts against Rome emerge in Galilee because these guys are hot to trot Jewish people, no God but Yahweh. It's just they don't, they're not particularly concerned with the rabbis and all the stuff they're on about. So uh, that's the world out of which Jesus comes. And we know that part of the world. Many of his disciples' names are actually names that come from the Greek world. Andrew, for example. So the area where Jesus is operating, it's already kind of multicultural. And Alexander had been there. So you have to know some Greek. You just have to. Like everyone knows some English. Uh, but there's also some evidence in John that looks like he knows the kind of Hebrew that rabbis would use when they're having their discussions. And that's, if you look at John, it's quite different from the stuff that goes on in Mark and Matthew and Luke. Right? It's a, a different calibre of debate and it looks more like the rabbinic stuff, which doesn't surprise us because in John it's all happening in Jerusalem. But Mark and Matthew and Luke, it's mostly out in Galilee. So, yeah, I think you know, it's generally agreed he knows those three languages. Right on. As best we can tell. Right. right. Um, apart from getting a TARDIS. So. Uh, Doctor Who? Was the book you were talking about Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright? Yes, it was. Um, the question here, based on your unpacking of gospel, uh, doesn't the gospel mean good news? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it does literally mean good news? Good news, yeah, yeah. Okay, so helpful to know. Yeah. And uh, can I say, yeah. it's, it's, this is the problem I always had, because I grew up in a Pentecostal church, which is great. I'm so grateful for that. I, I, uh, Katie had a different background. But I grew up in a church where the Holy Spirit worked among us, uh, not as we would like. Some Sundays were pretty dreadful, to be honest. But there were those moments, right, when you just felt God's presence come among you and seen amazing things. But what I had to wrestle with growing up is that was so segmented from life around me. So, you know, just I want to say when you say good news, just make sure it's fully embodied and it's meant to speak to real people on the street about a changed life. It's not just about you can have your sins forgiven and the rest of the world just goes its merry way. That's not what this means. It's much more powerful than that. And sorry, to, if it's okay, one day I'd love to do another series on how you can't live in the modern world with basically having Christian values, and that includes modern China. And Chinese scholars have told me that. Right, so just, we're not just talking about are the Gospels true. The modern world right, is everywhere eating the pudding of the truth of the Gospel. So there's that as well, right? and that's what it's meant to do. It was meant to change the world. That's another. I get excited about that. I should stop. <laughs> this is uh, a, a actually a really helpful question. It's a practical question, possibly a providential question, because we can unpack it a bit here. Because you and I were talking about it this morning. Oh, well, okay. What yeah. is your favorite Bible translation? Ah, 
Well, okay. Apart really... from just the original Greek, yeah, yeah. what yep. would be? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> give us, give us an overview of range for those that don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, I think. Okay. Well, just, just my preference. You, you know, every translation is going to miss something. If you want to study Shakespeare, you have to learn English. If you're a German student, that's just part of the deal. You've got to learn English, right? If you want to study Goethe, you just have to learn German. That's if you're going to do it seriously. It just everyone recognizes that, right? Um, so why do they do that? Because every translation is embedded in the culture of the language it's using. You can't separate language from culture. So it's really hard to do a good translation. Uh, and I, there's a whole debate about that. And you can get some very literal translations that are actually misleading. Because the English becomes so wooden, it doesn't actually pick up the sense of how the language is working. Uh, on the other hand, you get translations that are so free, they can just sometimes... I saw a review once of... I won't say what the Bible was, but by a very well-known English scholar, I think probably the first evangelical to hold a, a chaired position at English University. And this Bible had come out that everyone loved. Um, and his review was, small children may sometimes find this helpful. That was it, one-line review. <laughs> um, it was, only the English can do that. <laughs> Stunning, I thought. So you've got to find a place in the middle. And um, some of my teachers, like Gordon Fee, you might know him, great Pentecostal scholar, yeah. Uh, another friend, Bruce Walkey. These guys worked on the NIV, for example. And I know how deeply committed these men were to giving us the closest thing they could give to what the Hebrew or the Greek was saying. Uh, and there's something called dynamic equivalence. But they will tell you that even with that, you're going to miss some nuances. So with that as a caveat, um, I tend to use the NRE. And the only reason I use that is because um, the ESV for me, it, it's just it's a little too much reformed evangelicalism in there. Right? Now, I don't have a problem with that, but just don't put that in your translation. right? Just that's the tough thing, how to try and translate it without then saying, oh, and I'm going to put my theological reading on it. So I'm not against reformed evangelicalism per se, that's not it, but when I'm doing a translation, so I think the NRS3 is kind of the most neutral and the most accurate. NIV, yeah, I like that too, how could I not? Gordon worked on it, but somehow the, the RSV is a little more, I think, kind of restrained. And I know for some of us that's difficult, and I've thought about that. Um, I was writing a commentary on Mark at one point and uh, kind of fell over because it was 150,000 words on the first chapter. So there was something pompous about that, so I had to stop. But I really had to make a decision about how do I do the English translation? And I ended up going with, I'm not going to go with simple English. And the reason was, I heard the voice of Gunther in my head. He was this otherworldly being. And I wanted people to realise that it's not about the scriptures being easy for me to read because discipleship is not about it being easy for me to follow Jesus. Right? It's, it can't be about me, it's got to be about him. There's a part of me that likes the translations that say, this is not your story, Rick. So in some ways, I do like the old King James. I'll probably say uh, the old one, the new one's a different kettle of fish, but the, new, uh, the old one is probably the best English translation ever. It is so beautifully poetic, but it's done by the most brilliant English scholars not long after the time of Elizabeth, when English was at its most glorious, right? So if you love your old King James because it rolls off the tongue, there's a reason for that, right? 
Jesus College where I went to in Cambridge, one of its scholars was one of the translators. It's, uh, the problem is its English is so outdated it can be misleading and the manuscripts it's based on, they're from you know, 400 years ago when we only had a handful. So it's not always the most accurate translation. And then the New King James, alas, destroys a beautiful English but fails to make, you know, use the best manuscript. So, or I've opened my heart too much, so I should probably stop. So for those taking notes, NIV, that's New International Version, NRSV is the New Revised Standard Version, correct? Yeah. And I'll use the NRSV in my, when you look at my slides, that's what it is on the screen. Right on. But you don't have to do that. that that's just, you know. Or you can buy my version in the lobby for $49.95. That's welcome then. Or you can learn great. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to split the proceeds, Rick. Shush. Anyway. Uh, okay, some questions now that might venture into next week, but let's get into them now. Uh, did, did Mark and Luke know Jesus personally? Were they more investigative reporters? Can you touch briefly on yeah. the people that knew Jesus, people that didn't, the people that are two, three wow. handshakes away? What is that looking like? Well, that's another great question, um, and it, it, it's actually pretty exciting, but I'll look at the time here. and um, Lots of time. We got so time. we'll try. Uh, so here's, here's one of the things that we really try to help people do is just pay attention to what's in front of us. And uh, there's a famous, um, can I say, Jesuit scholar, uh, Polanyi. And uh, no, 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 that's, the, that's not him at all, not the Hungarian guy. I've had his name and it's gone. Oh, da-da-da. Canadian, famous Canadian philosopher. Right up there with Aristotle. Anyone know his name? Uh, Lonergan. Yes, thank you, Lonergan. Right. Um, well done, you. So one of the things that Lonergan says is the first thing, the first step to knowing is paying attention. And that's what we'd have to do when we're trying to teach people to read their Bibles well when I was a teacher. Uh, in fact, one of the exercises was you've got two verses, write down a hundred things you can see. And it drove students nuts, right? But it was designed to, it was making them slow down and pay attention. Right? And, and I think we saw this morning, just, wow, all these connections going on. Um, so when you do that, one of the things you'll notice is, as, as far as we know, Mark is not, well, he's not one of the 12, is he? Okay. But why do Matthew and Luke follow him, which they appear to? Why do they do that? because their Gospels are twice as long, why are they following Mark? Hmm. And then you'll notice that Matthew, who by, is by far the most popular Gospel in antiquity. So if you don't have a lot of shekels, you have to choose between Mark and Matthew and Luke. Which one are you going to go for? And the answer is Matthew. They go for Matthew two to three times more than the others, because he's just such a great teaching Gospel. You get a whole bunch of stuff in that, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the, the star, all that stuff. It's just great, and they go for it. But then Matthew actually has the story where Jesus says to Peter, right, upon this rock I'll build my church. Now, without getting into the debate about what that means, but I think that's the clue as to why Matthew follows Mark. Because in church tradition, Mark is actually saying what Peter says. Right? So that's there if you look in your New Testament and it's part of the tradition that Mark was Peter's interpreter, whatever that means. That's a whole nother kettle of fish. Okay. So when you're reading Mark, you're getting Peter's stuff. And of course, you know, the later church would not accept a book into the canon unless it had that apostolic connection. And no one ever questioned Mark. We have no evidence for anyone ever saying, does this have authority? So that means that Mark has to have had some kind of connection. 
with some figure. Uh, I know I'm going on here a bit, but then people will say, well, Mark is the most common name in the Roman Empire. Yep, that's true. There's 50 million people in the Roman Empire, but there's not 50 million people in the church. Right? Why does Paul just sign his letters Paul? Most other literature, you're going to get your three names. Well, because when you're writing to family, you just use your first name. And how does Paul describe believers? We are all brothers and sisters in the new family of God. Why, when they give labels to the Gospels, is it only Mark and not Mark, Publius, Eutonius, something or other? Right? Because everyone knows who he is. Well, you stop and think about that for a moment. How many Christians were there around the time Mark was written? That's a really hard thing to get right, but probably around 7,000, as best we can guess. Not that many. Right? Maybe eight. Just these few decades after Jesus. Now, you're going to be saying, but what about all those numbers in Acts? Well, you've got to kind of realise how they used numbers back then. And not to say they're being dishonest, but... Uh, there's not many Christians out in the West. It's the, in Rome, yep, but mostly it's in the East. And uh, then you have to say, okay, we've got 7,000 people. How many of those could actually write and read to do this? Well, probably 10%. And yeah, that are about 700 who might do this. Then who has the authority and the standing to be recognised? And how many of those are called Mark? So I think by the time you simply do that, historical thinking, don't have to be a Christian, just historical thinking... Uh, the reason it gets attributed to Mark is because everyone knows who this Mark is and when you read the New Testament, it's pretty clear who that Mark is. Right. He's the guy whose mum has a house in Jerusalem to which Peter goes when he escapes from prison. Right. Isn't that interesting? And of course, the serving girl, that's a wonderful story, right? Peter comes to the door and she goes, oh, Peter's at the door, Peter's at the door. Did you let him in? Oh, no, right. it's great. Yeah, kind of a little humorous moment. Um, so what that tells me is that Mark knows Peter because Peter apparently knows his mum's house really well. Imagine that. Imagine coming home from whatever it is, school, and having hummus and crackers with Peter. And you can get to ask him all these questions, right? And not just for five minutes. And then his mum knows the women who are at the tomb, and Mark gets to meet all these people. They were there. Could you imagine that? you imagine sitting down with Peter and saying, so listen, tell me about this. Oh boy, let me tell you about that. Was I a complete geek? Oh my goodness, right? So um, I think that's where, you know, that's the Mark and Peter connection. And then Luke, um, pretty much Paul, connected with Paul. And then I, I think for Matthew, it probably is the Levi. And then John will be the John, I think. Now there's big debates about that, but that's where I, that, their whole long conversations around right and I've already spoken for six minutes on that one so I should probably oh that's really good yeah not to add that it just reminds me of a biography that I just read two years ago of of Rowan Williams oh yeah and it was a reflection on his time as Archbishop of Canterbury yeah. and it was like listen at the, at the very beginning of the of the, the work he said listen I'm just going to refer to him as Rowan yeah. because everybody knows yeah. that when we say Rowan we just mean that guy because he's up there high enough yeah. and so yeah. that's a little bit of the same kind of thing we're still exactly. dealing with now right right to some degree it's such a small communal group. It's only in the second century that it starts to get bigger and you find all those heresies cropping up. But early on, it's a tiny, close-knit group. They know one another. Right? It's, it's amazing. Uh, Luke, I should say this too, Luke. Um, it, you know, Luke has this story about a guy called Menean. And you think, what in the world is he doing? And then he tells you um, Menean was actually Herod's household administrator. 
And then you go, oh, that explains why Luke has all these insights into what was going on in Herod's household that's not in Mark and not in Matthew. Why is that? Because Luke can go out for coffee at the local Antioch Starbucks and talk to Menean about this. Right? <laughs> now, can you see how that's working? I mean, we, I don't know what we have in it. I know what I had in my head, some kind of spray. You know, remember the Munsters where Claw would write? Okay. Uh, so there's Peter and, and the hands writing inspired by the Spirit. And, no, 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 no. These guys know each other. They're talking about this stuff. And if that's the case, boy, you've got the best oil you can get on this stuff. You couldn't get any richer than what you've got in the Gospels. It's bedrock great stuff. Now, people are saying, well, it's interpreted. But everything's interpreted. Even Jesus interprets his actions. You think he walks into the temple, kicks over a few tables, whoops, and then walks out later saying, gee, why did I do that? You understand? Everyone interprets their actions. They do something because they have a particular interest in it. So when people talk about uninterpreted history, I'm thinking, what? History's about actions. People are interpreting their actions. Caesar just didn't happen to stumble across the Rubicon. He knew exactly what he was doing. Okay? So you're getting to talk to people. Who would you like to be the one who explains your motivation? People who don't know you or your mates? Okay? That's what you're getting in the Gospels. And these are guys, according to the Gospels, that Jesus chose from the very beginning to be with him. That's why they carry their authority. Right? That's why no church council decides that Mark and Matthew and Luke should be in the canon. They are already authoritative. And in that sense, that canon chooses the church, not the other way around. Right? I'm, I'm preaching there again. Sorry. That's good. That's why you're here. Uh, given the argument that the Gospels are historical docu documents, uh, how is it then argued that Jesus is not a historical figure by so many scholars? How do they arrive at that? Well, okay, there's a number of answers to that one. Um, some people are just plain ignorant. Sorry. Right. And someone came up and told me they were in a class at UBC on literature and the professor began by saying this is a class about legend and they're going to talk about the Gospels. And I just thought, right, you need to talk to Gunther. <laughs> you need to talk to someone who actually knows the classic world. So sometimes it's that. Um, I gave a talk like this at a camp just recently and uh, it was interesting. When the camp began, there were a couple of guys who sat in this circle and two of the guys said, you know, to be honest, we're just not sure where we stand with our relationship to Jesus or the church anymore we're just you know, we're kind of struggling and okay good oh. very honest of them at the end of the time of going through this stuff uh, one of the guys said um, he said I just don't know what to say this is so compelling he said why don't people believe it answer is <laughs> how many people do you know who actually respond appropriately to the facts how many people know smoking will kill them and still do it Jesus nails it in John. There are some people in whom there are no guile, like Nathaniel. But even he's not sure, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? But then when Jesus says, I saw you under the tree, Nathaniel, I'm in. Okay. But there are other people who they're more concerned about honour from their world. And I know stories like that about scholars that I've worked with who started off as deeply believing in Jesus, but if you want to really kind of make it, you have to behave a certain way, and that's what they chose in the end. Right? Some people are more interested in the glory that they get from other people, and some of us just don't like to have the light shone on dark parts of our lives. 
Now, you know, I can't speak to an individual unless I know them. I don't have windows into people's souls. But, you know, I need to disabuse you of this. Just because you have good evidence of something, you know, folks, that does not mean that people will go with it. <laughs> Just get used to that one. They saw what Jesus did and still they crucified him. Right? So... Um, that's the way this thing works, right? Uh, I just want to encourage you that you haven't followed, followed cunningly devised fables, but you can still tell Jesus to take a long walk off a short pier. He'll let you do that. Right? So, anyway, it gets, it's also more complex than that. You know, people will say, well, we don't believe in miracles, and I don't like that language anyway, or we don't think Jesus could have done this. You get that whole spectrum. And, uh, and usually those are the people who deal with the coloured beads type things. They break the Gospels up into bits and they say, well, Jesus couldn't have done that. And I'm thinking, how can you make a statement about what Jesus could have done if you don't actually know who he is yet? And then you realise they have a picture of Jesus in their back pocket that they're not showing you. Right? And they're comparing the Gospels to that. Well, hang on a minute. We need to blow the whistle on that one. So. Got a... A great closing question here, but just before that one, there's a couple others we want to ask, and um, this this one went to some of the content of the Gospels, which is a, a, a great question, and it's 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 a big one, but so we'll, we'll we'll try and keep it relatively simple. But what exactly is the kingdom of God, and when did it begin, or is it going to come later? We know that's a huge question, but just a couple of okay. Well, very quickly, I think Jesus is the mystery of the kingdom. That's what no one was expecting. They had a certain view of what the kingdom looked like, Torah obedience, a whole bunch of things. We'll talk about that. That's what makes... We'll talk about this later on, but just to flag it. Every, in the first century, every Jewish teacher pointed to Torah and called people to obedience to that. And I've spoken to Jewish rabbis, right? I know some of them. And, um, and they said, look, yeah, nice. But the problem with Jesus is this. Every good rabbi points to Torah, he points to himself. That's the problem. And I think that's what Jesus says to his disciples. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom, and the mystery is that it's embodied in Jesus. He himself is Yahweh among us. He's what's bringing in the kingdom. And nobody was expecting that. Nobody. And so that's what happens when Jesus comes. It's the breaking in of that kingdom in him. And he actually says that in Luke, right? The kingdom is here right now upon you. That's what they're preaching, the 72, the kingdom is near. And that near language means it's right up in your face because it's come. So that's already begun and now it's working its way out and we're part of it. Right? In us, the kingdom of God is breaking into Fort Langley. That, that's what we're doing. That's the sermon this morning. That's what the Holy Spirit's all about. Right? You want to do the Jesus thing in a pagan, non-Jewish world? That's what you need the Holy Spirit for. But it's okay, God's really good. And if you just remember that, so keep asking him to help you. Keep seeking, keep knocking. Right? And it'll come to its conclusion at some point. And uh, that will be an amazing day. Can you just imagine what that's going to be like to see him that you believed in and haven't yet seen? And Jesus himself says this, blessed are those who've not seen and believed. And one day that'll be us. And I have no idea what it's going to look like, but I reckon I'm just going to burst into tears. I just, I'll probably just melt and come apart at the seams, right? Wow, yes, it was really all true and even more than I imagined and get to have this great meal with him and uh, you can enjoy your fruit juice, I'm going to have great wine. So. <laughs>
<laughs> Cheeky fellow. We had a guy here at the men's retreat showing us pictures of vineyards on the screen. This place is going downhill fast. Man. Here's a, here's a question maybe to close with, so take as much time uh, as, as you like here, Rick, but this, I think it's a great question because it cuts to the heart of, of what we're about as people of faith and the topic of the Gospels. If I want to start a conversation with a neighbor, mm -hmm. how could I use the Gospels as a starting point to lead to Jesus? Yeah, um, it's a great question. We have to use the Gospels as a starting point, not for them, but for us. Uh, you know, if I look back at my own experience, I think the Jesus I knew for many years was like Jesus the friendly Casper. Uh, and it was really only um, just people like Tom Wright, that, that period in time when people began to see, you've got to make sense of this first century Jew, that's when Jesus became incredibly real to me. He's not just some spiritual ghostly figure. He actually was here and did extraordinary stuff. So I'd say that's where we need to start. We need to be aware of that, okay, personally. But then if you watch Jesus in John, so John's different from the others. Um, Matthew, sorry, Mark and Matthew and Luke, I say that in that order because I think that's the order they were probably written in. They've got lots of wonderful little vignettes where you get these little short stories and Jesus comes out with this singer, right? And, and, it's, and that's actually ancient education. That's how they taught them to write and how they learned their different philosophers. They'd write little paragraphs. They're called crea. Okay? So these are educational documents. You can see that. When you get to John, you actually get far fewer, but they're much deeper conversations. And it's great to watch that. And Jesus starts in a different place for every single person. So Nicodemus turns up and says, oh, teacher, we know God must be with you. No one can do what you do unless God is with you. And then Jesus says, yeah, great, you need to be born again. I'm like, what? And, and the, the woman at the well, it's different. He starts by saying, could you give me the drink? And she says, what? <laughs> you're a Jewish man, you're going to ask a Samaritan woman? Like, and there are all kinds of, the disciples are a bit shocked when they turn up and see Jesus talking to her. I don't want to go into that one. And it's happening at a well, right? And you know Israel's scriptures, what happens with all of that, right? That's where the boy meets girl thing happens. And, um, but he starts there. And then the blind man, it's something else. Or the man at the... So I think the place to start is um, where people are. Because right? that's what Jesus did with us, right? He started where we were. But to do that, uh, there's some things about you know, learning to listen to where people are and then knowing enough about who Jesus is. And I'm not saying don't start, because none of us have got it perfect, but just um, what they need to meet Jesus, that's the critical thing. And you just learn to trust the Holy Spirit to which bit should I be talking about. But to do that, I think we have to listen first. Listen to their story. What is it they're working through? Uh, so one example might be I was on a plane and... Uh, you know, I had to fly down to Seattle and then somewhere else and the plane was late leaving. I was being really spiritual. In other words, I was being grumpy because I was going to miss my connection flight. <laughs> Full of the Holy Spirit. And anyway, this guy sits down next to me in this, and I'm just, I think the Holy Spirit said, come on, you're going to be a grump all the way down? Or this person's made in my image. Get over yourself. All right. So I start talking to him. And it turns out that uh, what his job, his job was to help people, you know, move into the US or Canada. All right. And... Uh, I said, oh, that sounds pretty amazing. Um, 
Hmm. He said, so what do you do? And I said, oh, well, I actually talk to people about Jesus. And he said, oh. And I said, but you know what? Um, what you do is a lot like what Jesus does. And what? And I said, yeah, right? You do this and this, don't you? Yeah, well, that's what Jesus does. Da, 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 da. And he's like, oh, well, I never realized that. Well, then by then the plane had landed and he had to dash to catch his flight. He never got my email or anything like that. But I saw him when he got to the end of the flight before he dashes off the plane. He turns around, looks at me and goes like that and he's gone. Right? Um, God knows where that guy is, but there's just a beginning where he realized that Jesus is not his enemy. And it doesn't mean that Jesus is going to leave me like I am. He loves me too much to leave me like I am. But I think for many people there's a sense that God's my enemy. And I'll finish with this one, as I keep saying. that One of the just standout moments for me many years ago, was I might have mentioned this a few times, but um, I was in the UK doing something and I had a day off and uh, there was a film being shot about two hours down the road in Wales somewhere and I'd rather than just sit around in my room, the group said, look, you know, we've got a driver, he'll take you there and you want to do that? Yeah, that'd be great, get to see Wales and I enjoy filming. And so he did that and uh, he picks me up and we get chatting. I mean, the first thing you know about Jesus is he cares about people. Right? So, you know, just a dead giveaway for me is how interested are people in other people's lives. When you meet someone, do you actually ask them about their life? You ask how they're going, because we know lots of people with it, that's never an interest, it's all about them. From beginning to end, right? That's not the way to share the Lord. We say Jesus loves people, we should embody that. Tell me about who you are. Tell me where you come from. And you'll be interested, right? So I was interested in this guy, and it turns out he was uh, an IT company for British Aerospace. So pretty sharp bloke. And uh, I listened to that and talked a bit more. Then he started to talk about his family and his struggles. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I'm hearing all this stuff. That was great. And uh, after about 20, 30 minutes, he said, so what about you? And I said, oh, you know, and I'm thinking, how do I answer this one? So I said, I'm interested in design and theology, which is not exactly what I'm interested in, but kind of. And uh, he kind of looked and he said, well, I just need to tell you, he said, um, I'm not a Christian and I don't believe in God, right? uh, especially your God, and I think you Christians have created all the trouble in the world. Don't want to fight, just saying. <laughs> but, and I said, I'm not defensive about this. So I said, oh yeah, look, I understand Christians behave badly. Oh my goodness, I get that Christians behave badly. I am one. Right? But I said, I'm not sure that's the whole story. And he said, well, what about Constantine? Well, okay, let's talk about Constantine. Oh, well, what about this? So anyway, after about 40 or 30 minutes of this, I said to him, uh, look, we should probably, I don't want to dominate this conversation. No, 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 he said, let's keep talking about it. So I bought him breakfast. It's always a good thing to do. Buy food for somebody, okay? <laughs> Follow your master. He creates bread, he doesn't need money. But okay, we can, for us, we'll just buy some. It's always a nice thing to do, feed someone, right? It's just a really human thing to do. And, and I, maybe we miss that because we don't really understand what it means to be human. <laughs> Have you thought about that? Share the gospel but not coffee. What? Who are you following here? <laughs> this is a guy who turns water into wine. No, share food, do that. So we got there and bought him breakfast and off he went. And He said, no, we should keep talking. We talked for another three and a half hours there and back. And uh, I'm, here's the thing, you don't have to be defensive because the gospel's already won and people can tell when you're being defensive. Don't do that, right? So I'll never forget at the end, Luke, um, he gets out of the car, right? 
and he comes around and he wants to shake my hand. He drops him off in Burford, beautiful town in the Cotswolds. Anyone know Burford? Oh, lovely, lovely, lovely. And uh, he says, mate, um, you completely fried my brain, right? But he's smiling, and it's not me, I'm just, it's just the gospel. And then this atheist says to me, right, not a Christian, you're all called in trouble, right? Walks up and he pokes me in the chest and he says, you need to make a documentary. People need to hear this, right? And the reason, it's not about me. What he'd learned was that God was not his enemy and all the stuff he'd loved about the modern world was the gift of the gospel. And it just, right? Now, read the gospels over and over again. God is not your enemy. He made you for eternal life, right? And he wants to set us free from all of those insecurities and guilt trips and stuff that he wants to give us life. Now, it's not fun to be the moral policeman of the universe, right? It's very different to offer people life. And I think that's what we're called to do. And in fact, I've said this a couple of times. I think the measure of our holiness is the degree to which people feel more alive after they've been with us before. Because this is about life. I think. I'm done. Okay, go. <laughs> Thanks for joining us tonight. And we, of course, want to invite you back next week and to bring someone along if you can as well. Uh, again, want to encourage you to send in questions. We will make sure to, to keep those moving forward. But let's begin with prayer. And I'd like to ask if Rebecca Monzo would come to close us in prayer. And if we could all stand, if able, and Rebecca's going to close us uh, in prayer. Thanks. God, we thank you so much for tonight. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the opportunity that we get to um, learn and to grow in our understanding of you. And we thank you for Rick, Lord, and the gift that he is to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you are using him tonight, Lord, and, and over the next couple of weeks to, um, to help us understand the Gospels better. God, I pray that, um, that the stuff that we learn would not just sit in our minds, but that, Lord, it would be reflected in our life. And that, Lord, we would um, not just understand, but, Lord, that we would actually live out what is true and what is good. God, we thank you that you are not our enemy and that that's a message that we can share to everyone. And so, God, we just thank you for tonight, and uh, we just pray that you would, um, that we would go with you um, as we leave this place. In your name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Grace and peace. Have a great evening. Drive safe.